Hello and welcome to the Singularity Syndicate podcast. I'm Naja Faisal. Today's conversation is with Dr. Annalisa Anral, clinical professor at the University of Southern California, Susan Dwarakpak School of Social Work, where we discuss the intersection of social work, human rights, and artificial intelligence. Dr. Anral brings a wealth of experience in anti-trafficking efforts and the power of storytelling in community building. And now, here's Dr. Annalisa Anral. Welcome to the program, Doctor. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So I want to first uh, talk about your resume. I mean, it's an impressive uh, resume with a lot of uh, achievements and, uh, you know, just uh, having uh, printed the highlights of your of your resume the other day, and it was uh, pretty impressive. So I want to I want uh, the audience to have a kind of a sneak peek on your journey so far. Um, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I think that part of the reason is that I was really lucky uh, in some respects to come to my work very early. Um, I started working on the issue of trafficking even before we called it trafficking uh, in 1994 um, when I was a, a undergraduate at UCLA. Um, and it's just been Part of my journey, I think, as um, a young Filipina woman in the '90s, there was no way to ignore the growing, literal sale of uh, Filipina women, um, both in the Philippines and Southeast Asia, and uh, globally. You know, in the United States, I just came uh, from New York, where a couple of good friends of mine just released a play um, called Export Quality. And it was this really beautiful storytelling about the mail order bride industry, um, which still is not you know, covered under the kind of um, umbrella of human trafficking. Um, so, you know, we have quite a ways to go still. Right, but what made you start that journey? Like, uh, I, I mean, you are, let, let's say, did you grow up here in the U.S. and then uh, chose social work as a as a major in university? Like, how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I, I was born here in the United States. My um, father uh, was in the U.S. military. That's how he immigrated here and, you know, was able to bring his family, my, you know, my, my mother's family, et cetera, over. Um, and I was uh, kind of a little bit of a military brat, although I don't remember moving around so much. We eventually settled in California. Um, and when I was in college, you know, I realized there is this, you know, I know it sounds so cliche, but there is this like whole world out there um, and began to really learn a lot about, you know, the Philippines. I had only ever gone you know, as a child and had those kinds of memories, but didn't really understand like the politics, the socioeconomics, et cetera. And um, when I was in college, went to a conference where uh, there was um, a workshop on labor migration and trafficking. And actually my first entree into trafficking was around labor exploitation 
and the export, you know, processing zones and, and things that were happening in the Philippines and other parts of Asia. Um, and uh, just got interested there once I realized, you know, it wasn't just women's labor that, you know, women's bodies were included in this. Um, and, you know, I remember being a student at UCLA and, and everything that that meant, you know, when you're um, 19 years old and kind of discovering the world um, and seeing, you know, on this bulletin board an ad for sex tours to the Philippines. And that's really, you know, where I got involved um, and and slowly seeing like the whole continuum of it, um, making it my kind of life's work. You know, I would think I was like any immigrant kid. I want to be a lawyer or something like that. <laughs> and, you know, um, you know, much to um, not the dismay, but just the adjustment of my parents, um, you know, uh, having me come out um, an activist and advocate, especially around gender violence, um, has been a journey, I think, for all of us. That's really incredible. The reason why I say that is because um, to find a purpose at uh, early age, at the age of 19 or 20, at the beginning of your, uh, your journey, um, is, I think, a blessing um, because... I personally like struggled a lot in university to find my purpose. I started as a basketball player. I thought like basketball is going to be my career. And soon after I was like, okay, well, advertising is my career. But then uh, every, every stage in life, when I dig deeper, I'm discovering like, oh, does it, is, is it really what I want to do? Is it really the contribution I want to make to humanity? So I'm always um, reflecting and it's, it's kind of my purpose has always been evolving. And I think, you, you know, I would, I would be like jealous of you that you found really that your purpose from the get-go and then you could dedicate your life's work into, into that thing. So tell me more about like finding the purpose and was it always like you knew it that this is going to be it and you never questioned that are you on, the, on that path or you need to change? Or... Um. Not to be too uh, existential about it, but I do think that, you know, um, uh, it changes everything. And so, you know, I don't think that I could have done this work if it wasn't so dynamic, um, if there wasn't such a big need, um, if I didn't learn how to understand th these types of issues in a really systemic kind of way. Um, and so I've been able to really work in a lot of areas when it comes um, to, to human trafficking. Um, you know, like I said, this continuum between labor exploitation and, and you know, commercial sexual exploitation. Um, I, I've been really lucky to be mentored um, in this space, both by, uh, you know, strong activist women globally, um, but also by academics. You know, um, I found myself in the area of social work. Uh, in large part because, you know, at the time that I decided to get my PhD, uh, there was, you know, one Filipina woman that was tenured in the United States, and that was Dr. Pauline Agbayani. And she said, you know, come into social welfare, you could be anything you want. 
And I said, oh, that sounds great. Uh, Much like yourself, I think, even though I kind of had this, you know, true north guiding me, I didn't know what that meant or or what form um, that would take. And and I've always kind of just been open to, um, you know, following um, the the kind of way different ways that we fight this issue, um, you know, which is I think how I end up here today with you talking about things like technology and artificial intelligence. I don't imagine that I would have been doing that, you know, twenty years ago. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Life is uh, very very interesting, um, but I'm just trying to really uncover. If someone like, let's say in your shoes, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes, discovering mm-hmm. that, oh, there's a huge issue on sex trafficking when it comes to the Philippines. How do you start? Like, what do you, what's, what do you do? Like, and, and, and tell me, what did you do? Um, I, I did what I would advise anyone to do, which is like to get in touch with the people that are already working, you know, in the issue. Um, even if something seems brand new to us and it just seems like we're kind of waking up to it, you know, it, it is a, you know, with these wicked problems, there've been people that have been working on this forever. Um, and so, you know, to kind of get in touch and, and learn, you know, I'm, I'm not just cause I'm an educator, but I really believe in lifelong learning. And I think that also keeps things fresh. Um, and to just see um, and be immersed in those communities, you know, I, I would say like a lot of the beginning was just a lot of listening. Uh, that's why I believe so much in the power of story as uh, to really begin to understand like how I am connected to this issue. Um, again, all of the systems that are in play um, and be able to work with uh, people that are doing what it is you think you want to be doing. Um, and finding your place in that, not rushing into something with thinking you have all the answers because you don't, yeah. you don't have to have them, you know? I'm assuming that you've uh, done um, uh, your undergrad and graduate uh, research on, on that particular subject. So what did you discover? What can you tell us? Well, um, I I think one of the most important things is that we can't treat this like um, a, a simple uh, topic, you know, Arundhati Roy says this really beautiful thing, where she, where, which I always remind my students of, which is, uh, let's not complicate things that are simple, and let's not simplify things that are complicated. And I think that oftentimes sex trafficking has become simplified as a matter of choice. You know, people don't do this unless they want to do this. Um, I think people have tried to simplify it also is a matter of force, you know, and there's a lot of gray area between those two um, notions of, of choice and force. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the, the biggest things that I've learned is that um, you have to understand the uh, socio-political and economic relationships between countries and between stereotypes and why they exist. Um, and there's a lot of layers. And I think that that has meant there's a lot of opportunities to do work um, in this space um, and a lot of places to disrupt, you know, this really horrific issue. And I, I think that the biggest thing that I discovered is that it's a really complicated issue um, and it, you know, is very difficult to simplify into numbers. I mean, I, I actually this year have started to stop 
speaking in numbers because I think people get caught up with numbers. Um, and, you know, and although that it's, it's important to understand the scope, I think it's really more important to understand like that this is happening out there and that it's, you know, more complicated than somebody's choice or somebody being forced into it. Um, and that within like kind of this space of complications, we can find also opportunities of where we can, um, help disrupt, uh, what is happening. Can you share one story? Because I know you're big on storytelling, right? So yeah. tell us about a story that really stuck with you, that makes you makes you feel that, damn, this is a great, great mission that I'm on. I, I mean, I think that, um, I don't know that I feel like it's a great mission. I feel like it is very needed. Um, I don't necessarily feel like uh, I'm in any position, you know, to be better at it uh, than than other folks. Um, but it certainly is something that keeps me up at night. You know, this idea that all around the world people are selling girls. Um, it, but you know, a, a few years ago, I was able to work with a great team of women. We wrote a book together. In fact. Uh, called Ending Human Trafficking. Um, and it, part of that was doing research all over the world. And I remember um, in one area, we were in Thailand near Chiang Mai um, at this place called uh, Chai Lai Orchid. And it was um, a place where uh, they had set up kind of a job training, you know, workforce development, what we would call here in the United States. But really it was this kind of very safe space for girls who are in danger of being trafficked from the, you know, uh, hillside tribes uh, to come and and learn, um, you know, a craft and learn how to, you know, work in um, this hotel in, in, you know, different areas. Um, and there was this little girl that I was interviewing and she was telling me how bad it was for refugees um, that were in the area and that if they left the refugee camp, of which there was very little food, no jobs. I mean, it's was horrific. Um, they would be, you know, considered gone and disappeared. Nobody would look for them. But if a tourist like lost their dog in Thailand, there would be like an all points bulletin for like this lost dog. And I just remember this 12 year old girl telling me, you know, we are not animals and we, we have the right to be free. Um, and, you know, and just talking to me about, you know, how scary it was to be a girl in, in this world that was so uncertain. Um, and at the end, you know, I, I asked her, like, is there something that I could, if I could do something for you, what would you want me to do for you? And, you know, remember, she's 12. So I, oftentimes children want a toy or they want to watch something or their favorite food. And, you know, she looked at me with very not 12 year old eyes. And she said, I just want you to tell my story when people ask you about the work that you do. Um, and so, you know, to make sure it happens, I mean, we we're confined by the screen, but I have this tattoo on my foot that is that phrase we have the right to be free, just so people ask me about it. Um, and, you know, to be able to uh, tell her story. And, That's you know, incredible. now she's a writer um, and, and is writing and her own stories. You are fulfilling that, that mission or that you're fulfilling that uh, request. 
Yes, so I, I hope really so. appreciate you. Uh, and thank you for sharing that. And it's really, really touching. People who, who listen to my podcast know that I talk about a lot of technology and transformative technology that have implications on our society. And uh, last year, basically, in, in similar times, um, ChatGPT was um, unleashed to the world. And since <laughs> then, the buzz of AI haven't stopped. And it's really overwhelming of, of how how much um, discussions and talks and how much this technology really has uh, impacted and mm -hmm. will have potentially more impact in the future. So uh, tell me the time that you first uh, stumbled on ChatGPT, just a personal experience. Uh, when you start talking to that chatbot, what did you feel and were you impressed at all? Well, I mean, I think that my um, interaction uh, with that kind of technology, uh, specifically if you're talking about ChatGPT, has been really looking at it in terms of two things, communication and also, um, you know, what does this mean for academia, right? I'm a professor and it's like I could just like horrifically see all these students writing their papers, you know, by <laughs> uh, using ChatGPT. Um, I think after the initial um, hoopla died down, um, I wasn't so scared about the idea that people, you know, that my students would use this as a way to, um, you know, write their papers, et cetera. Um, I, I am in a field where uh, we are very driven by and, and guided by a code of ethics. Um, and also, I think that, you know, if you really read ChatGPT, like for something like creating a paper, you'd see that it's just kind of upcycling, you know, information over and over. So, you know, I always tell my students, you're working really hard for that fail. Uh, and so a lot of my students who are very earnest and, you know, the thing about social work is it's very quick. It's two years of study and then you're out in the field. And in fact, many students are out, you know, doing a practicum even before, um, you know, they're working as a professional social worker. And so I think that that kind of level of commitment and responsibility to communities and families and individuals is something that is taken very seriously. I think in the world of trafficking, it's a little bit different where we are looking at, you know, how do people use communication? Um, and this is, you know, where I have been really lucky to work with folks um, that are interested in harnessing this type of technology and trying to disrupt, you know, that kind of chain of events that leads um, you know, to uh, commercial sexual exploitation. Um, and so it's been really interesting to see, like, how would you use something? Uh, we didn't necessarily use chat GPT, but, you know, how would you use this type of uh, bot technology um, to, you know, circumvent trafficking? I feel a lot of people uh, confuse AI with chat GPT and, um, you know, AI has diverse applications. Um, because this uh, is a general technology, it has multi-purpose. Uh, I'm always curious to see use cases, like how are people using it? And how do you foresee also people in who have a limited um, access 
to uh, higher education and uh, critical thinking and uh, professional writing skills. Like let's say people in the Philippines, these young women that you you care about in the in the Philippines, like how would you see them using technology like that to elevate their standard of living or to um, achieve more or to learn more? Like how do you see that impacting them? Well, I mean, I think there's certain promise, you know, in these types of technologies um, in terms of, you know, providing um, information around form and content. Um, so, you know, if you don't have access maybe to areas of higher education or, or even technical types of education where you maybe need to fill out an application or write a letter, um, then I think that ChatGPT is an amazing tool, um, that it really is helpful, you know, to, um, you know, get the wording right, uh, get the English right even, you know, if you are writing to kind of officials um, or, you know, need to create an inquiry about something. Um, and in those cases, I think that, you know, it is a tool that is really kind of democratizing spaces. Um, where, you know, you don't have to have four years of higher education to know how to write a proper form letter. Um, and so, I mean, I think in, in those spaces, I think it, it is helpful, um, even in trying to find out, like, uh, maybe things like what is the proper chain of command in certain places. Um, and so, yeah, it's interesting to me, too, to see how that's utilized. Um, I think in terms of access, like another level of access would be, you know, how how are, you know, folks that are trying to harness technology for good or for social change, how are they able to use that technology? You know, and, and that's another, I think, access point, because as you know, you and I both know, it's it's very expensive to code a lot of these pieces, even before you get to the AI, like even for some machine learning or, or even something with big data involved, you know, that's not even getting to the AI part yet. Um, but really also trying to stay, you know, a step ahead of people that would use this type of technology to be exploitative. And speaking of step ahead, uh, you know, it's really rare to see a professor of social work venturing into software. So tell me more about that. How did you get into into that level of complexity? Yeah, well, um, it's not by myself, by all means. Um, I do have to say, you know, um, at USC um, and at the Suzanne Dvorak Peck School of Social Work, we are very forward thinking. And I think a lot of schools will say that they're innovative and that they're design focused, but I have to say, you know, um, we started about seven or eight years ago, uh, where a colleague of mine, Dr. Renee Smith-Maddox, and I uh, realized that social workers and other human service providers were not at the table, and that we needed to be there when a lot of, you know, Silicon Valley technocrats were creating amazing things, um, but not ever speaking to the communities that it would impact. And so, you know, um, we started doing work around how do we harness technology for unaccompanied minors, this surge of minors that were, you know, crossing the borders um, for a better life. Um, and now we are looking at, you know, how do we harness technology to stop sex trafficking? And a couple of years ago, we looked at this phenomenon 
of athletics and trafficking. And that anywhere in the world where you had this huge athletic event, you would also have a big jump in the numbers of folks that were trafficked. Um, and a lot, and you know, and we talked to a lot of law enforcement to find out how they dealt with it. Um, and I just so happened to, you know, be working with a couple of folks in technology who said, what if we could stop it? Like, and I said, like, what if we could stop sex trafficking? <laughs> they said, no, 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 no. What if we could just disrupt it? But in, in a scale where, you know, if, if the way that the trafficking is happening is mainly through websites and, and, inter and the internet and, um, you know, the use of mobile devices like telephones, what if we could basically block, you know, um, that, you know, communication between the people that are, you know, selling um, uh, this type of exploited sex on websites and the people that are trying to buy it? What if you couldn't get your foot in the door, so to speak? And I was like, how does that work? <laughs> you know, um, and we talked to a lot of survivors. Uh, we talked to a lot of sex trafficking advocates and activists who basically said, you know, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it is this simple exchange of calling up a phone number um, and of the, the other side, you know, pimps and traffickers picking up um, or, you know, how, whatever mechanism they have and then setting up, you know, the, the transaction. Um, a lot of times, even law enforcement will set up stings using this mechanism um, and, and then, you know, will end up arresting, right, people on the other side, these, these you know, potential buyers. And so, you know, we uh, worked with survivors to get the wording right, you know, to um, we, we didn't we don't have like the access to data that uh, chat GPT has. But we do, you know, have access to these communities of survivors who told us. These are the phrases that buyers use. These are the emojis that they are using and the symbols and the, the you know, slang. Um, and we're able to craft, you know, different messages to make it seem like, you know, these were potential buyers. And then to target, you know, um, all of these different websites and send, you know, overwhelm the system with messages. So it's difficult to tell what's real and what's not real. Uh, it's, a, it's a trap slash uh, you used also the cybersecurity tactics of hacking kind of thing when you send a barrage of data onto this website and they'll, they, they got overwhelmed and shut down, something like that. I mean, well, they're, you know, not high, it's not hacking. Um, it is not, um, you know, creating, you know, this kind of um, illegal technology. We had to make very sure of that. Um, you know, we were answering ads. So we were mm. answering solicitations that were put out there in the public. We were just doing it in a way that answered the ad a hundredfold. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, then, you know. Sorry, so solicitors, when they, you know, every time they see an ad, they respond to, and they're expecting to see to to buy something, and then, oops, it's not. The second time, oops, it's not, and then they give up, and basically, you achieve your goal. 
Yeah, I mean, in a lot of spaces, we saw a lot of behavioral change very early on. Um, you know, it's a fine balance to, you know, talk about, um, you know, the possibility of this without, you know, folks on the other side figuring it out and, and trying to change what they do. Um, so, you know, it's 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 an interesting place to be at. A lot of folks are like, why don't you, why isn't this more widespread? And, you know, and part of it is, you know, we have to, we're still testing different things. We have to still be careful. Um, you know, there, there is very real danger um, in many of these spaces. Um, and um, it's kind of one of those things that if you put into play, no one, no one can know that you're putting it into play. You know, there has to be a certain amount of subterfuge on our part as well, because we are trying to stop things so far upstream. You know, we're not, and it's hard to count, right? Like, so it's, we're not, we don't have X amount of arrests at the end of it because we're trying to stop the buying altogether. Like, where is it deployed? Like, do you, oh, yes, do you, yes. do you target sports events and sports, like, for example, the World Cup of football is coming in, in this city and then uh, and then the basketball championship in the city. Is, is this how you, is how, how you deploy it? Yes, uh, we've actually deployed it um, in, um, in a few areas. Um, uh, the, during the Super Bowl, uh, that is the biggest in the United States. Um, uh, that is the biggest athletic event where we see the largest rise in trafficking. Um, we would like to um, continue to uh, test this in other um, in other athletic areas. Um, you know, um, all the way from kind of our those elite sports like F one to um, you know basketball, NBA, you know, um, all-star weekend. Um, and, you know, it does take quite um, a lot of labor power to do this um, because we are looking not just, you know, um, it, it's not just about, you know, can we disrupt, but it's also like, what are the levers of change? Like, where do we see kind of this behavioral change happening, we would love to, you know, begin to partner with law enforcement, um, you know, to see where this could be something that is run in the background all the time. I mean, this doesn't just have to be something that is run during athletic events, um, but is certainly a good opportunity to be a place, a starting point. Absolutely. Could you? Yeah. Possibly, like I'm thinking with you right now. I'm, I'm brainstorming yeah. kind of with you. <laughs> I, I'm assuming like you could probably like have an NGO or like a nonprofit organization and then receive a lot of funding so that you hire a lot of people to create more and more of these fake websites and um, and then and then be out there so that you overwhelm the system basically and then hopefully make it make it make it dent and and, and stop that industry. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I mean, and here's where we come, I think, full circle, you know, with the AI piece is that, you know, we aren't actually recreating the wheel. We're not actually out there creating fake websites or anything like that. Um, but I think that as we begin to, um, you know, get that um, algorithm, you know, be able to hire, right, the, the right um, 
coders, the right uh, data analysts, et cetera, have the right servers to do this, it could potentially be something that runs on its own and that is able, I, I think the promise is that it's able to change with the behaviors of the exploiters. You know, I'll give you, it's not, again, always like a hard thing to give examples, but I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, very early on, the other side, as I call it, uh, started to suspect that we had this bot running, you know, on their website. And so we saw that instead of listing phone numbers, they began to list alphanumeric strings. So instead of listing, you know, 310, et cetera, et cetera, they would list like a three cue ball emoji, um, spell out the number one, O-N-E, and then have the number one, you know, in an effort to trick, you know, whatever was getting the phone numbers and, and looking for these numbers. Um, and that was, you know, within hours. Um, so, you know, we are very well aware that, you know, the, the this other side is also um, observing, maintaining, looking um, at patterns um, and, you know, has always been many, many steps ahead. And so, you know, as as social workers, as human service providers that are in this space where we want to use technology, we have to find a way to sprint ahead as well. Um, and so that's the hope is to find, you know, that type of funding um, to be able to do something, you know, like this. Absolutely. And I can definitely yeah. see how AI can play a role. Like, yeah. uh, you know, AI is very smart, especially if you, if you play around with GPT-4, it can, it can understand either, even subliminal messages. It can... <laughs> Uh, even if you do these emojis things, it will still recognize the number. So if if GPT-4, let's say on the other side, it's probably going to be a great help and great aid for for the efforts. I, I'm wondering, Joe, though, um, what is the the percentage of sex trafficking in the U.S. versus other countries? It depends. You know, um, the U.S. has a really high percentage because we also have a very, um, we have a couple of things in terms of identification. So we've like quite a sophisticated way, I think, of identification. We also have an agreement, finally, across the United States that any child um, that is sexually exploited commercially should be considered trafficked. A lot of countries don't have that, or they have a very low age of consent. Um, so our age of consent currently is 18. Uh, there's a lot of activists that are pushing for that age to be 24 in terms of, you know, these types of exploitative crimes, um, just because, you know, your brain isn't formed until you're 24. So, you know, kind of tie it to some biology. In terms of looking at, you know, really um, being able to identify both the like domestic trafficking and then also um, trafficking that occurs abroad. Uh, again, that's why I have, you know, kind of stayed away from numbers. I think the most important number is that it's a $99 billion industry. Um, wow. So, you know, it it is the, the folks on the other side that we talk about are loath to give up that profit. Um, and I think that is the most, like, important, um, important number. Um, there's such disagreement about the numbers um, that I think we get tied up 
uh, into that. Um, but I think what is most salient is that globally sex trafficking is not the majority of trafficking, but it is the majority of profits. So, so the overall profits is like 150 billion and $9 billion of that is made through sex trafficking. It looks like it's like up there with the drug industry and all of that stuff. So oh, yeah, 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 it's, it's, it's like second only. Wow. Yeah. Dr. Annalise, I want to thank you. You, uh, It's been an honor uh, having to talk to you and having this conversation with you. I'll leave you with the final question for the young folks that you probably teach or the young folks who are looking into starting a uh, their, their, their college degree in social work or in something related to that field. Um, what what do you leave them with final, final words of advice? Um, I'm going to tell, I'm going to leave them with the advice that my own advisor, you know, gave me that Dr. Agbiani gave me, which is, you know, you could, we could be anything we want. Um, I am very much a believer in the words of Arundhati Roy, which is another world is possible. And social work and social welfare have been the vehicle and the kind of academic backbone that has allowed me to do that. And I can't stress enough, especially in a world where we need more frontline workers than ever before, um, that this has been work that feeds my passions and also has really the impact to change the world. And I think that, as you said, it, it's, it's lucky, but it's also a blessing to be able to be in that space um, where you could impact lives. Doctor. Enroll. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, too, for having me on. I appreciate it.